Hey guys, Eric here, and I want to talk to you real quick about the dailydownforce.com. Every day, this website covers the latest news and trends in NASCAR, from silly season right through the checkered flag in Phoenix. Need a new morning routine as soon as you wake up? Well, now you have it, dailydownforce.com. This is the website I use to keep up with the industry, the drivers, and of course, what the community is talking about. And speaking of community, dailydownforce.com is also home to some of your other favorite NASCAR content creators. Plus, they've got all sorts of information that I like to keep bookmarked, like schedules, penalties, ratings, and everything you want to know. Oh, and be sure to check out the merch shop while you're there to find some exclusive diecasts and collectibles. So check out dailydownforce.com, that's dailydownforce.com, and I'll see you in the replies. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I could have backed off, <laughs> but that ain't racing. Gave it all I could. I didn't leave nothing laying on the table. Took it all with me to the racetrack. Lord, if you just get me back these 5,000 miles, I got to go and get me back home. I promise you one thing, I won't be back. Don't you ever forget, I'm a daddy too. Well, you should have seen that, that wreck from my side. That ride back from Darlington, from that day forward, I made it my life's commitment to do whatever I had to do to become a Winston Cup driver. Hello and welcome to the Scene Vop Podcast, where we will always speak of Neil Armstrong and Richard Petty in equal terms of reverence. <laughs> Wonder why. Leave it to me yes, to make that say. kind of connection. <laughs> Incredible. Now, Steve, I want to ask you a question. Yeah. July 20th, 1969, there was a race at Bristol. Do you know who won that race? Uh... I was still in college at the time and never had been to Bristol or even barely heard of it. But I'm going to guess it's David Pearson. You are absolutely correct. Now, tell me a little bit of trivia about that race, other than the fact that it was run on the day that man first landed on the moon. Oh, that's right. Uh, well, the trivia is that David Pearson had the flu, and it was very, very hot at Bristol. And you hate take the combination of the flu and the hot weather, and boy, that'll wear anybody down. Bristol in July. Exactly. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so David had to have a relief driver. Now, who was the relief driver? Well, this driver was available because he had blown an engine about 60 laps into the race, and his name was Richard Petty. And believe it or not, as big a rivals as Richard and David were over the years, Richard did the relief driving for David. Would you have known that if not five minutes ago we were both going through Greg Fielden's book? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no. Had it happened in 1979, I might have had something for you. Okay, all right. Now, listeners, in this episode, we are going to have what I truly do believe is a very, very, very special conversation with Linda Namick. And again, that's not a name that's going to ring a bell with a lot of people, but his story is just absolutely one of the most fascinating that I've ever heard. Today, the interview is going to run about 30 minutes. That's a little longer than what we usually do, but to hear his story, I think is going to be well worth it. It's a fascinating story. It's a story about a guy who was making his way in racing and in NASCAR and was friends with a lot of the contemporaries of the time. But he took a complete turn, and the direction he took is not one that many men in this country would take. Now, several would. I'm not, don't misunderstand me, but I don't know how many men would go the route that Lyndon went, and we're going to learn about it. And that route that he took was joining the National Guard, which in turn led to a stint in Afghanistan. Imagine that. Where he did see combat. Yep. It's a very special story. Next week, we're going to share the second half of that interview with Lyndon, in which he describes very poignantly 
yeah. uh, what it was like to be in situations like that. And then, Steve, he, man, his story, again, just blows me away. He got into some stuff that I didn't expect him to and talked about his family and how difficult it was when he came back and some things that he he did. And, yeah, it's a very powerful story. Listeners, you want to pay attention to this one. This one is very riveting. Now, in our second segment, Steve, we're going to talk about a certain cover boy that we had at Grand National Scene. Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Cover boy. (laughs) Cover boy Steve Wade. Now, Steve, you appeared on the cover of Grand National Scene three times. Yep, that's right. Three times. So we're going to talk about that experience. So, yeah, I can't wait to hear what you've got to say about all that. There's plenty to say, I'll tell you that. And being a cover boy three times, I can only say one thing. Those issues didn't sell very well. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wish we had a stack that we could give away. And, Steve, on Patreon, we have new support from Eddie Moeller. Patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. PayPal.me slash the scene vault podcast. The support that we get on those two platforms allows us to tell the kind of stories that you're going to hear today and that you've heard in the past and that you're going to be hearing in the future. And Steve, we've got at least a couple more guests lined up that I'm pretty doggone excited about. be good stuff. Good stuff. I've spent some time actually researching some questions. And for one of those guests, I've got seven pages. Good heavens. Seven pages of questions. <laughs> I hope he's ready. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he will be. Listeners, thank you for your support. Patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. PayPal.me slash the same vault podcast. If you can do a dollar a month, we've got a lot of listeners. And if all of them could do a dollar a month, yeah, that would be very cool. I know that you won the 1996 Dash Championship. Mm-hmm. What led you on to the Bush Series? Was that the next mountain to climb? Yes. In our uh, ignorance, we thought <laughs> we thought that you yeah. know you you uh, you know for me it was go karts, uh, and then we were trying to find a car, a NASCAR car that that I could race. Number one, that I could fit in, and number two, something that I could do that wasn't one track over and over again you know trying to get experience the ultimate goal was obviously to be in the top tiers of nascar but we didn't have you know at that time in the mid 90s there wasn't a kind of prescribed path it was kind of figure out your own way yeah and after we you know i ran the dash series for three years and uh, did really well and um you know was able to win at daytona win at bristol in 96 win the championship and then it was kind of like the natural progression is well then we need to move up to the bush series you know uh and so that's what we thought we would do i mean we we go from a you know a car shop and a chicken farm and we'll go rent a space <laughs> and you know we did we did great there then this the natural logic is well we'll do we can do the same thing there we'll go start our own team build our own team and and go go do it you know yes that's how we got there you know so uh it was quite the rude awakening for a 17 year old with a new crew chief and and a new team and a new car heading to what was my first uh you know bush series race i actually tried to make the race in 96 in rockingham okay yeah uh, for tracy what's his name 
Tracy Leslie, I think, yeah. was the guy. Yeah, yeah. He, he had the car. I rented the car, went and tested there. It was really fast. And my first qualifying run in practice, I crashed. They bandaged <laughs> it up, and I missed it by one spot. <laughs> In the Mr. Wow. Race, yeah. uh, by you know, back then there was yeah. 60, 70 cars showing up for a race, and I was the first one to not qualify in that car that was wrecked in practice. So it was a p- part of the history, part of the story for me. But yeah, showed up in '97 to the uh, Daytona event for the Bush Series, and was just like, yeah, I think I was the 41st or 42nd car to make it. And um, the probably the best story for me from that was. You know, being in the race, getting to race, amazing. Yeah. One of my arch nemesis, David Hutto from the Dash Series, <laughs> was yeah. also in the race. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think about 20 or 30 laps into the race, uh, he spins in front of me. And so it's kind of one of those things where when you're a driver and, you know, it's slow-mo, he's spinning, smoke fills, you know, turn two. And I'm like days of thunder, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm just going to put the hammer down and I'm going to come out the other side. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I go up high, wide open, come out of the smoke, and he's sitting dead sideways on the track. And I hit, oh, him, wow. I, I hit him square in the door, I mean, yeah. wide open. Yeah. I mean, I thought I killed him. I yeah. thought I killed myself at the same time. And I hit him so hard that, uh, like, my steering wheel was bent up into the to the roof. And... Um, my helmet spun on my head and, and the mic that you know did you talk through hit me in the eye and it hit me so hard that i couldn't see out of my eye so when i got out of the car of course you go to the am you know go to the ambulance go to the infield care center and of course i tell them i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine you know the yeah. whole like yeah. i'm a tough whatever and uh so i come outside of the care center my brother's standing there and i'm like i can't see out of my right eye and he's like what are you talking about i was like i don't know what happened but i Something happened. I can't see out my right eye. And plus, I'm so sore. I mean, I really felt like I got hit by a truck. I mean, it was yeah. it was one of the hardest impacts ever in my life was that one. And uh, so I go lay in the back of uh, Suburban to go to the hotel and just like, I'm just hurting. I can't see. Anyway, the next day, my eye cleared up. It was like it kind of like you thumped it almost or something yeah. and stunned it. But yeah, that was my first race in the bush. Race. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to NASCAR, yeah, man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now, was the goal basically to build Team Amic into a cup ride, or were you basically wanting to just gain notice and maybe go to a Richard Childress or a Jack Roush or a Hendrick Motorsports? Well, I think Dad was also naive enough to think that he could do that in in a short amount of time. You know, I think we all came into it going, well, he's doing it, and we know a little bit about, you know, so it was like, for us, it was kind of like, the good old country boy kind of, we can do this, you know? And I think that was definitely our goal. I mean, we, we thought that was a realistic goal. Um, and even after, when I decided to stop racing, uh, dad kept the motor shop going for a while. Cause I mean, we, you know, we started eliminating variables that were keeping us from being success. And the first one we eliminated was the engines because, um, <laughs> I think it was 99 at Vegas, um, I qualified third behind Mark Martin and Jeff Gordon. And by lap 10, I was leading the race by probably four or 500 yards. Yeah. And by lap 20, my motor blew. And it was <laughs> it's wound a little too tight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was a great motor. <laughs> uh, for, for 20 laps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, 
so it's like we can't have that can't happen yeah. again so we yeah. have to, now we set about the course of let's build our own motor program let's eliminate that variable you know and did the same thing with chassis and did the same thing with bodies and trying to become you know the greatest uh team that we could and throw in every available resource that we had at it to accomplish that goal you know i don't think that we ever said we wanted to you know have five cars or anything like that but we wanted to be the best that we could be you know and whatever that grew into is what it grew into but it definitely took on its own shape and form whenever we started trying to do things and compete on that level when you start talking about doing an engine program to be successful you can do it for one team but you really need four or five teams you need to you know spread your costs and all that so this is is a very interesting time in nascar to take that on um what should we have done we probably should have gone to a rick hendrick or someone and said hey put me in a car for 10 races let's just see what happens you know that would have been a probably a much better move for us but we would not have had the experiences we had 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 we done that hindsight's 2020 always and that's what happens now yeah all the time yeah but at that That, time that that wasn't standard no and nobody would have everybody would have thought that would have been a little bit crazy you know but that would have been that would have taken a lot of forward thinking to approach it that way and like i said that's now that's now kind of a common theme but back then it was like that's crazy you know so interesting the sport over time becomes about relationships and i have this memory of being at a Japanese place in Davidson and you, Hank Parker Jr. Mm-hmm. and Dale Jr. walk in. From what I understand, you guys were pretty close at the time. What is your best Hank Jr. and Dale Jr. story that you can share? <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, we had an amazing relationship. Uh, Hank Jr. was somebody that was very I was very close to. Uh, we were at, at the end of the 97 season. Uh, I met Hank Jr. in the ambulance after the hooligan, <laughs> after the hooligan race. This is um, becoming a theme here, Lyndon. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it's either go fast or go home. I went home more. Uh, no, I, we were racing in the 97 uh, hooligan race to get into the homestead race, and I wrecked Hank Jr. I was on the inside of him, I think in turn three, and got loose and wrecked him. So, we, you know, back then, you get in the ambulance – sometimes with the guy that you wrecked or were wrecked by, you know, make, making it even more dynamic. But he gets in that, he gets in there and he just has this biggest grin on his yeah. face, you yeah. know, and just was very, I was like, I'm getting ready to fight, you know, kind of thing. Cause I didn't, I didn't mean to, but I did wreck him. Um, but anyway, we get in there and just hit it off, you know, and, and really started spending a lot of time together. We actually lived close to each other and wound up for a long time doing life together. And, um, you know, met our wives at the same time, got married, we're in each other's weddings. No kidding. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So he, you know, and then, uh, obviously Hank senior and his hunting had a big impact on, on me. And I got to experience some really neat things with them. And of course, Hank senior and Dale senior were great hunting buddies. And Hank junior introduced me to Dale junior, uh, right as Dale junior was starting to come on the scene, uh, in the Bush series. And so we just became all, we became good friends and we all like video games and uh, my best <laughs> Dale Senior, Dale Junior, and Hank Junior story would be uh, Dale Junior set up these four computers. He took four corner desks and placed them all together so they made a circle. Yeah. And we had four independent computers, steering wheels, pedals, the whole deal. And so we were in there racing online back when nobody knew anything about that. And it's like six in the morning. We've been racing all night. Did you really? Oh yeah, yeah. 
You wow. Know, it's, it was crazy. <laughs> crazy. And uh, Dale Sr. walks in and just is like mad because we've been up all night. Y'all need oh, to get a job. Gosh. Y'all need to go to work. Wow. You know? um, at the same time, grinning out of the side of his mouth because we're yeah. all in there together, you know, racing. Did you ever get Dale Sr. on one of those simulators? No. But I did flip him off during the 24 hours of Daytona. <laughs> so I feel like that's better. That's better. Tonight. Okay, now you open that door. I got to ask, yeah. how did that happen? <laughs> Guys, one of, yeah, at the time, um, you know, here getting young and dumb. But uh, it was it was just a blast. We were running the 24 hours of Daytona the same time Dale Sr. and Dale Jr. did. They ran the yellow Corvette. Road racing was a blast for us. Yeah. For them, too. And... I ran a car that was that was a Corvette, but it was a completely different class. It was a class that would go. I got caught like at 209 at the end of the back straightaway. Their car was limited to 100, <laughs> like 185 or something like that. But they were way faster than us through the infield. So I was much faster on the banking. Yeah. And they were faster on the infield. Yeah. So anyway, they knew this. I knew that. So we were having some banter back and forth uh, in the... Uh, in the pits, uh, you know, NASCAR guys driving and, uh, you know, it was, it was real, it was just neat. We were having fun talking about our road racing that was going on. So I got to giving Dale senior hard time about being faster than him on the oval. And, uh, he turned and gave me a hard time about being faster overall. And so anyway, so I just, you know, kidded with him and, uh, I got on the track with him and this, this 24 hours of Daytona, was terrible because it rained like 23 of the 24 hours it yeah. was just unbelievably and our windshield wipers quit working but anyway the best part of the story <laughs> was uh me coming up but i had just come out on good tires and they were on a long run and uh i came out behind him and i knew i was gonna i was gonna be faster than him for just a couple laps so i got up on the bank and, and i'm going through the gears and i got so as i blow by him i just happened to stick my finger out the window and it happened to be the middle one <laughs> And uh, you're number one. Yes, that's yeah. right. Because uh, I just felt like that was uh, appropriate. And uh, so then about I go in front of him and then about three or four laps later, he comes by me and returns the favor. And, and he uh, didn't boot you. No, he didn't. I think he Holy I think cow. he thought his car and my car were a little bit too volatile to uh, have a NASCAR type event happen because <laughs> those road racing cars yeah, were yeah, very yeah. edgy, you know? Um, but yeah, we, we had a good laugh about that afterwards. He was such a, um, the parts that I knew about him, now obviously there's tremendous history with him, but the parts I knew about him were, were a lot of fun. You yeah. know, he really, yeah. uh, loved his kids, the parts that I saw. And, you know, he was a, a person that really cared and cared about, I felt like he really cared about me. I felt like we had a relationship and not a lot of people can say that. And so it was just neat. It was neat to play, uh, even a small part of that story. You know, even if it was for two laps that I was faster, <laughs> yeah. but it was fun. You also had a relationship with Adam Petty. Mm-hmm. What do you remember about him? Man, just what a happy person. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was another neat relationship. Uh, I got connected with Kyle. He was super gracious, and we just wound up developing a relationship, and that trickled trickled down. Adam uh, was just a joy to be around. We wound up doing the, uh, I think it was the 98 Kyle Petty Charity Ride yeah. together, with who, who was now my wife, uh, on the back of my motorcycle, and we rode across the country. And we just spent a lot of time together, and... Um, just had we just really enjoyed each other 
So he, he was a very special person. And the, all the Petties are just amazing people, um, you know, that uh, are big personalities. I was in New Hampshire, and that was by far the darkest weekend of my career. But eight days later, you win an ARCA race at Charlotte. What was that like for you? <sighs> it was it was emotional. Um, my immediately after what happened with Adam, I, I wanted to, in my best ability, try to find a way to remember him. Yeah. You know, I, obviously, I'm gonna always remember him, but to do something to honor him, to honor that family, to honor the relationship that I had with them, and how special that was to me. You know, so um, my goal going into that race was to to dedicate that race to him. You know, as people did and people do at the time, it just seemed like the best way for me to express kind of how I was feeling. And, uh, yeah, to win the race, uh, you know, Ken Schrader was driving for his team, uh, had our engine. That car was great. I remember that was my first taste of a cup-sized car, cup-sized motor. And so going from, you know, the different driving dynamics were pretty severe at the time. And uh, it was just so much easier for me to drive that car than my cars. And I was just like, this is all. And I just loved it. Yeah. Loved it. And yeah. didn't qualify as good as, uh, I think, Ryan Newman. But but uh, actually, came on really strong in the race. I uh, wound up winning the race. Carrie Earnhardt was running me down with like 10 to go, I think. But I had enough of a distance to, to hold him off. So I was able to win that race. and. You know, dedicate that, obviously, to Adam and the Petty family and, um, you know, just a way for me to express kind of my heart towards yeah. towards him. Yeah. Uh, not very sufficient considering your son's been lost, but it, it was the best I was able to do at the time. I talked to your dad several years later, but he said that Adam's accident pretty much took his passion for the sport away. Was there ever a point where you and he maybe talked about you doing something else? Or was that something you considered on your own? Yeah, I think my decision to leave racing was was pretty independent of my dad. Yeah. Um, I think the it all kind of started for me uh, with Big E. I remember like debating whether I even want to go to the racetrack again. Like, yeah, that was a huge. It was huge. I mean, that like you know, I think you can somehow. As sad as this sounds, you can somehow reason away other people. Rationalize but, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he is, you know, the pinnacle of who we all wanted to be. You know, like, if that can happen to him, obviously it can happen to anybody. And, but, you know, you move on. You have to rationalize it away, uh, justify it, and move on to the next race, thinking that it can't happen to you. And so then you have other people that I was connected to, from Kenny Irwin to Blaze Alexander, um, you know, that all impacted my life. Uh, but I don't think any of that was enough to kind of sway me away from racing. There's a, there's a, you know, cavalierness to it that you think you're the man. Yeah. You know. Ten foot tall, bulletproof. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Or else yeah. you wouldn't step into a race car and go 200 miles an hour and run into concrete walls. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, so that, the, you always get to the point where I, yeah, okay, I'm over it, you know, whether that's by Wednesday or Thursday or, you know, whatever. So I think I made that decision to uh, get out of racing. It was independent of my dad because uh, he stayed, he actually stayed in and kept fielding a team for a little while, even while yeah. I was, uh, even after I had raised my right hand and, <laughs> uh, joined the military. Yeah, he has still kept the team going. Okay, and he kept the engine shop going for another 
like a year and a half. So um, that was it was it was pretty deep in him. I yeah. think yeah. Uh, also the challenge of trying to to make it. You know, he's been you know he'd been very successful in business, and um, you know I think it was a challenge for him too. So at what point? did the idea of maybe joining the National Guard begin to take shape? Was it a 9-11 thing? Was it an Iraq thing when the U.S. invaded Iraq? Or how did that start? Yeah, for me, I think as I was starting to look back over my life and over my career, there was a lot of things that I said no to in order to race. Uh, One would have been the opportunity to, to play college football. Um, I was 6'3", 275 as a 15-year-old. So I <laughs> yeah. was very good at standing in front of people and yeah. was starting to get – and I, obviously I lost a bunch of weight when I started getting serious about racing. Didn't go to college, didn't have a college experience. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was the military. Uh, my dad was in the National Guard, was an officer um, for, you know, 10 to 12 years. But I, he never talked about that. I didn't really know about that. But I think also, too, there was a part of me that was kind of a World War II buff. Um, okay, yeah. And um, just kind of appreciated the military. Yeah. And always looked at that as a as a very unique group. Um, and I don't know. I guess I was somewhat infatuated with the thought of it. <clears throat> so as I progressed through my career – you know, that was just kind of always in the back of my mind. And the, the the catalyst, though, for all of this was when my son was born. He was born in November 2002. And uh, I had just come off of, um, I think, the 2002 year was the year with the Dr. Pepper team. Yeah. And so that was a terrible train wreck on both sides. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> some of the things that I was asked to do as a driver was mind-blowing and, uh, you know, that whole process really just deflated me and kicked me in, in the groin. And, um, and then I was able to run a PPC car at the end of that year and okay. one race at Kansas, yeah. finishing the top 10 on seven cylinders. And it was, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, that was just kind of like, okay, you know, that was a good, uh, you can do this, you know, and this is quite the process as a driver to go through if you're not, you know, because you're, you're going to lose more than you win. Uh, unless you're Kyle Bush, apparently. But, you know, if, for the average We're guy, not going there this podcast. For, yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, so it's just, um, you know, it's just a, it was interesting. Uh, so we started the 2003 year with our own team. Harold Holly is crew chief. Uh, and getting much better than that. No, it doesn't. Absolutely. I was so oh. excited about that and love that man. So the first race for me was Talladega. And... I think the 2002 season put, you know, going through all that and just the, just the dynamics of all that really kind of probably took the most toll on me. So I was already in my mind, by the time we got to the beginning of 2003, I was in my mind starting to have conversations with myself. Like I said, the catalyst though for me was 2002 when my son, November 2002, when my son was born. When he was born, it changed me. It changed me. Kids have a way of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Very deep way. And I realized that there's more to life than driving a race car. And I, I have a picture. Uh, it's a picture of me at that race holding him as a six-month-old. And um, I just remember being in that moment holding him on that pit road going, this is, this is not all it's cracked up to be. And, you know, so going that race, 
qualified, I think, in the top ten, was running fourth, and the guy in front of me cuts a tire. This is like first run. This is like 20, 30 laps in the race. Guy in front of me cuts a tire. Ten I, laps. Ten laps in. Yeah, ten laps ten into laps the race. In. Yeah. He cuts the tire. I see it. I see it coming apart. I put my hand up. Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. problem. Let off the gas. Guy behind me never lifts. Yeah. Hits me. 30-something car, 20 car, however many. It was a, like half the field. Yeah. Wrecked out. And literally, I remember I'm spinning almost well, almost <laughs> flipped over, but I'm spinning down the track going, I'm done. I'm like, no kidding. That's my synopsis of my career Holy right cow. there. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um, I was thinking like there were six races that I was leading inside 10 to go that something happened. And so this was another one of those nails in the coffin for me where I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. And I literally walked away. I took my helmet off, got in the ambulance, rode in the infield. I knew it. I knew I was, I'm, I'm done. I told I got into the motorhome, told dad, I said, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. Now, had you already had conversations with he and your wife, Melanie, about mm-hmm. National Guard or mm-hmm. what was next? No. Oh, okay. No, but I had <laughs> been doing I had been doing my yeah. own uh research for about thirty days. I'd been toying with the thought, but then uh yeah, after that race, like uh when we by the time that was whenever it was in April, but by May the twenty eighth, I had I was raising my right hand in May by May. So I had already toyed with it for about thirty days and then within that next time period before i was sworn in i went through the whole process of my decision making and why i chose what i chose and all that stuff now your guard commitment was a weekend a month Mm -hmm. and two weeks a year yeah what were you doing full time i really wasn't doing anything in the whole process for me like i you know being a extremist from the standpoint of a nascar driver and all that kind of stuff i really like the appeal to me of the military was the ability to be relying on myself only. So my, from the standpoint of my success is determined on my own, you know, how I perform. I think it was kind of a, it's kind of a response to feeling like that my own performance was not taken into account into the success of my career to that point. Okay. Well, obviously yeah. I'm driving the car, right. but uh, I think I was tired of, my career being other people's hands is what it felt like. So the military is one place where you can absolutely succeed or fail based upon your own response and how you handle yourself from your physical shape to your leadership, to your ability to follow orders, all those things. And so I think that was one of the things too that appealed to me. And the other was like, I set out on a course. I put in um, a lot of due diligence in order to prepare to go into the military. It wasn't just uh, walk into the recruiter's office and take the first thing he offers you. You know, I had a plan in place, and I changed that plan as I got to basic training um, for the infantry. But my goal was to be in the Special Forces. Um, And I didn't know, through research, found out that the National Guard actually has a Special Forces group um, based out of Alabama. So I went and met with them and said, what do I have to do? to to get in this unit and they said what do you want to be i was like well um either a weapons sergeant or a medic you know those are probably my two biggest interests okay well go back to your home state go to infantry basic training get airborne school and then come back here and we'll send you to um, the special forces training or first selection then training 
okay. So that's what I did. Went back, um, went to my recruiter, said, I want infantry. I want the best infantry unit in the state. And I want to get airborne school at basic training. He said, okay, no problem. Which he's a liar because <laughs> it is a problem. A recruiter? <laughs> right. Surely not, man. <laughs> so he didn't tell me the truth on that one. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I wound up doing so well in basic training that I was awarded airborne school. So I got to go, yeah. graduated immediately, marched straight to airborne school. And uh, But it was in that process that I was like, I went through 16 straight weeks with infantry, what they call OSIT, which is one station unit training. Yeah. And so I did that. And at the end of that process, after being gone from home, I'm like, I do not want to go to Fort Bragg for another two years. So I'm going to stay w- with my unit. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to keep, keep doing this uh, and not be gone from my family and kids for another two years. Yeah. So. I, that was the course. That's where I changed courses and stayed there. So yeah, my, you know, I helped some dad with the real estate development, uh, but no, I really wasn't wasn't doing a whole lot to speak of. How easily did you go from the kid staying up all night to play video games mm-hmm. to the ramrod straight soldier? Yeah. How easily did you fall into it? Well, I feel like I did it really well. I did, like I said, I did a lot of homework. Um, I actually had a good friend of mine who's now a, a lifelong friend, but at the time, um, it was actually a, a guy that I was in Hank Jr.'s wedding with. This Actually, I met this mutual friend at Hank Jr.'s wedding. And uh, anyway, we, we were buddies and duck hunted a lot together. And I told him, I was like, man, I'm going into the military. And he's like, you're crazy. But if you're going to do <laughs> yeah. it, there's a guy you need to meet. And uh, this guy's name is uh, James Pickens. And he was actually in, he went to college, signed uh you know, through ROTC and did four years. And he was on the end of his four years as an officer. And he was based at Fort Benning as a XO in the infantry company. And he's like, you got to meet this guy. And so I got to talk to him, met with him, went down to Fort Benning and saw basic training in action, learned the dynamics, uh, really kind of had a cheat sheet of what it looks like. You know, so I went into basic training with knowing a lot of the components, knowing a lot of what's expected, knowing a lot about the separation and all the things that usually trip people up. I already knew it going into it and I was already ahead of it. So, you know, I was, um, very ready. I, the moment that I came home from that race is immediately, you know, I, the decision was made. So I started preparing. So I was working out running. I went into basic training in the best shape of my life. Most people get to, yeah, you yeah. know, I, okay. my time, my scores on my PT test were the same from the very first one to the one at the end of 16 weeks. That was, I, I came in at that level. So I, I started out like third in my whole company and yeah. I wound up like 10th because I never got any better. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed the same, yeah. but I, I took it very seriously. So, um, I was there to be successful and that was my approach towards it. And I knew that if I did my part, then I would, I would be rewarded from the standpoint of being successful, you know, and really the key to the military, if you do what you're told, you're ahead of 90% of the people. If you just obey you know, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you do that and being a little bit motivated, I was able to excel um, there. And I wanted to be a good soldier, you know, so I, I just kind of applied probably some tenacity that I had from life and from racing with a new opportunity and, um, and enjoyed it, thrived in the environment. 
So you sign up in May of 2003, mm-hmm. and for a little over three years, an overseas deployment, in theory, was a possibility. Mm-hmm. But then it became a reality. Yes. How did you get the word that you were actually going to be deployed, and what was your family's reaction? Yeah, so I was at um, Fort Stewart in Georgia when our unit had a, a meeting and basically said, this is the point of no return. Um, we are getting deployed. We're going to Afghanistan. And I was at the end of my three years, so I could have just opted out. Uh, I'm at the end of my contract, so I actually see ya. <laughs> I actually extended to deploy. Um, so, yeah, I called, called my wife and said, hey, I'm getting deployed. Um, and at the time didn't tell her that I extended to deploy, just said I was getting deployed. Uh, so yeah, I made the choice to, uh, to do that. And yeah. Um, and you know, thankfully lived through that, but yeah, I, I, I chose to, to go over there. What was the process of actually heading to Afghanistan? We did all of our train up in Mississippi in Camp Shelby. Okay. Um, which is right outside of uh, Hattiesburg. Yeah. Is that where Brett Favre's from? I think so. It's right outside it's of It's Brett Favre. Who cares? Yeah, right. <laughs> Only if you're in Wisconsin. Um, yeah, so we were, we were in Mississippi for months. They let us come home, I think, in April for 30 days, right before we shipped out. And then, um, you know, it takes a while for you to get your whole unit in country because our whole brigade deployed over there. So uh, it took us, and they have, they spin it up. So you can be in like one of five or six chalks, which will be a group of hundreds that'll be coming in country. They cycle it in. And uh, I was, uh, I think, in the third group that went over there. So my actually boots on ground date was like May the 8th or something like that. And you were in the 1st Battalion of the 118th yes, Regiment. Yes, that sounds right. Okay. Sounds right. Man, I did research on how you to say really that good. correctly. That's awesome. Give me a That's little awesome. bit of credit That's here. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Yeah. yeah. It's been a minute since I had to think like that. But yeah, that sounds exactly right. Okay. On the plane, actually going to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Commercial. What was going through your mind? Was there fear? Was there expectation? Was there maybe a little bit of excitement? Was there a little bit of, hey, let's turn this thing around and go back home. This is all a mistake. No, no. At that point, it was all full, full. you know, to use a pun, full throttle, just like I was okay. ready to go. Where you know, you I'd at? spent okay. so much of my life, at that point to me, I spent so much of my life training to go do this. And at that point, I was in a position of leadership. And, you know, it's just like, this is, what, this is what I signed up for. I mean, when I signed up, that's really what I was signing up for was to go fight the bad guys you know and at that point um i had been in mississippi and anywhere was better than being in mississippi so like let's go you know (laughs) for our listeners in mississippi the views expressed (laughs) are not necessarily those (laughs) but when you're traveling camp shelby for six months it uh changes your perspective um yeah mississippi is is a great state but uh, in the air, it, Mississippi would have been great when you compare it to Afghanistan. Okay. So, All right. okay. Uh, but at the time, uh, it seemed like anything was better than being locked in a base. Uh, so, yeah, going over there, uh, you know, it's, it's it, everything's in stages. So we couldn't just fly straight into Afghanistan. We actually had to go to Kuwait. And then that's where you actually in process into the theater of operation. Okay. So Kuwait's a central point that processes people into Iraq or processes people into Afghanistan. So you come in there, you get all of the things you have to do there, and then you take a, fly, a plane from there and go to Afghanistan. And then they have to fly in a certain way for 
air traffic security. And then the next thing you know, four hours later, you're on the ground in country. For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. So, Steve, what do you think Dale Sr.'s reaction was to coming in and seeing Lyndon Amick and Hank Parker Jr. and Dale Earnhardt Jr. playing video games at 6 o'clock in the morning? What would his reaction have been? (laughs) Well, knowing Dale back then as I did, I think he would think uh, just one thing. I think he'd act like he's angry, but at the same time, really smirking and laughing about it all. Do you really? Yes, I do. Well, let's put it this way. He did have a sense of humor. Okay. And while he might be somewhat upset that these guys have been up all night long doing this, something he wouldn't do. In fact, I don't even know if he knew anything about simulation games. But be that as it may, he still would say, well, you know, this is pretty funny when you stop and think about it. Well, I hope he had a sense of humor for this Lyndon Amick kid to be flipping him off. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think if he didn't, the outcome of that would have been a more, uh, shall we say, serious. Well, you know, I asked Lyndon, I said, and he didn't turn you when he came back to you. Lyndon said, no, he didn't. But Earnhardt did flip him back off. So, <laughs> hey, turnabout's fair play. And Steve, I did want to share another story that I had about Lyndon. And I've not shared it with him yet, but I think he will understand. Randy LaJoy and I once went to lunch together there in Concord, somewhere there around his shop. And we met one of Lyndon's crew guys. And Randy, you know, started giving the guy a hard time about working for Lyndon and working for the rich kid and all that. And the guy basically fell for it. And the guy said, Lyndon's a rich kid and his daddy's got all the money and blah, 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 blah. And he didn't know who I was. Randy had not introduced me. Of course, the more this guy talked, the more Randy egged him on. Uh-huh. It turned into Lyndon being a really rich kid. and Sounds like Randy Lee Joy. <laughs> Just when the guy had dug himself a deep enough hole, Randy LaJoy said, let me introduce you to my friend here. This is Rick Houston. He writes for Winston Cup Scene. (laughs) (laughs) And that poor guy's face. (laughs) How wide did he get? (laughs) That poor guy, man, he was just, oh, I wish there was some way to fully describe how terrified he looked in that moment. And after just a split second, I said, that's okay. It's okay. This is all completely off the record. (laughs) And that was, at times, a perception of Lyndon. His dad, Bill, was very well-to-do, had a ton of successful businesses. There was that perception about Lyndon. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very important to note that this interview will prove that there was so much more to Lyndon. The rich kid label might be true, but the rich kid inside is not true. Lennon was his own man. The thing that really, really, really stood out to me 
from this entire interview was the fact that he said that he wanted to do something where he could stand on his own two feet. Right. I think he sensed that kind of perception that people had of him. But this was a deal joining the military, joining the National Guard was something that he would have to do on his own without any help from anybody else. Not only did he stand on his own two feet by being a member of the National Guard and going to Afghanistan, think about it. That was a sacrifice he didn't have to make. It's one thing to stand at attention during the National Anthem, and we will not get into that. (laughs) Okay. But it's something entirely different to put literally your life on the line for your country. Absolutely. That was the first part of the interview with Lyndon. Next week, listeners, you have to tune in because as powerful as this portion was, next week is really something special. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Okay, Steve. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) April 5th, 1979, you're on the cover of Grand National Scene. Well, you're kind of on the cover of Grand National Scene. Yeah. You have on a Darth Vader outfit, (laughs) and Daryl Waltrip is Luke Skywalker, and Stevie Waltrip is Princess Leia. Right. Okay. All right. Now, let's hear it. How did this come about? It started at Martinsville (laughs) Speedway. Now, back in uh, 1977 or 78 is where it first started, Dick Thompson, the late Dick Thompson, was the PR director there, and he was a really, really imaginative guy. He loved for the covers of his programs to be something different and something timely. Y'all know how that movie poster for Star Wars looked back then, right? You got this great big figure of Darth Vader, and uh, and then uh, Luke Skywalker is holding his lasers randomly. Steve. Lightsaber. It's a lightsaber. Okay. It's not a laser sword. I'm sorry. Let's get this right now, buddy. I'm not the most (laughs) rapid Star Wars fan, but in any case. After all these years of you calling me a Star Wars geek, (laughs) (laughs) you made your claim to fame off of Star Wars. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but maybe infamy might be a better Okay, all right, all right. You do have a point. So Dick decided to redo that particular movie poster and make it into a cover for his program. So he asked me to come down to Martinsville Speedway. They had worked up a little studio down there. Now, you were at Roanoke yes. at this time. I okay. was still yeah. in Roanoke. So I went out, <laughs> and I knew what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to be Darth Vader. I went out and found a Darth Vader mask. Not just a mask, but the whole head cover that fit. And so, and then I found a long black cape. Because you couldn't find old. Dolls. I don't even want to know where you found it. That's a. Co- <laughs> <laughs> and I reported to Martinsville Speedway. Now here comes Stevie and Daryl into the little studio. We're setting up to take the cover shot. I walk in with the mask on and the cape on, and Daryl and Stevie sort of stand there, speechless. So I said, "Well, I don't know who I am." So I take off the mask. And Daryl looks at me and said, who are you supposed to be? I had met the only man probably in America who had not seen Star Wars. Didn't have any idea who Darth Vader was. Daryl? Daryl. 
had not seen Star Wars. No, and I told him, I'm supposed to be Darth Vader. And he said, oh, yeah, Darth, I saw him in the pitch yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so we set ourselves up for the pose. Daryl up front, Stevie holding on to his side, me behind the two of them looking as menacing as I possibly could. Now, to make this work, I had to stand on a stool <laughs> and be above. Them. Oh, yeah, yeah. We took several shots. Now, instead of a... What was it? Lightsaber? Yeah. Not a lightsaber. It was a lightsaber. Yeah. Instead of a lightsaber, Daryl was holding up a trophy. Oh, yeah. And Dick took that picture and made it look like the trophy was the saber with the light shooting out from it. So it was very, very, it was cool, tell the truth. Yeah. It looked very similar to that movie poster. And Dick put it on the cover of his program with the big words, Car Wars. <laughs> and that's how that came about. Later on, uh, many years after this, we ran that picture, that old picture over again of Daryl, Stevie, and myself. And of course, fully decked out as Darth Vader. And we said, okay, if you can guess who's playing Dark Vader in this picture, you can get free tickets to Martinsville. Now that's exactly the way it was written. We forgot to say, we will draw your name out of the hat. And so all those people that all had those old- people who knew it was me wanted their tickets. And oh. this was kind of a sticky wicket, shall we call it. <laughs> so to speak. We managed we managed to work with Dick Thompson and got everybody their tickets. But uh, by miswording something, you can get results you don't want to get. You don't say. <laughs> no. I'm an expert at that. And Steve, that was not your first appearance on the cover of Grand National Scene. You had been on the cover of the September 28th, 1978 issue right. with <laughs> Bill France Jr. and Rosalind Carter. Right. And me. And you during a trip to the White House. Was that the first trip that NASCAR yeah. made to the White yeah. House? Yeah, it okay. Was. Yeah. What happened was back in 1976, Jimmy Carter, who had been the governor of Georgia, was a great NASCAR fan. Came out to races at Atlanta and stuff like that. And while he was running for president, he told us all in racing that if he won, he would invite NASCAR to come to the White House for dinner. Well, guess what? He won. And he made good on his promise. And he uh, had the White House staff invite this long list of NASCAR people, certainly drivers, and certainly crew chiefs, and certainly the NASCAR officials and their wives. And it turned out that there were a few media guys, not many, that got invited. Don't know how in the world they selected me, but the story about how they found me is kind of interesting. I was working at the Ronald Times at at that particular time, and we had a team in the Roanoke Bowling League. <laughs> Every Tuesday morning, I was bowling, if you can imagine that. I can just see the Billy Carter bowling connection, <laughs> NASCAR connection. So, <laughs> so uh, they, uh, I got a page over the PA system in the bowling alley. It said, Steve Wade, report to the county. There's a phone call for you. So I did, and the guy handed me the phone, and before he handed me the phone, he said, this is the White House. What the hell have you done? The White House I, called I, you at a bowling alley. <laughs> you talk about being wide-eyed. I, I just couldn't believe it. So I took the phone, and I said, hello? 
<laughs> this voice said, this is the White House. We want to invite you to the NASCAR dinner on this date. Gave me the details. And I just said, is there anything for a few minutes? <laughs> Finally, he said, are you going to come? <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, yes, sir. I will be there. I will wow. be there. That's how I got noticed to be to go to the White House for the dinner was a phone call in a bowling alley. That is the most NASCAR story ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes you think if the White House wants you, you know, they're going to get you. How do they find me yeah. in the bowling alley yeah. for crying out loud? I'm yeah. just glad it wasn't the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Now, what was the experience like of actually going to the White House and meeting the First Lady? Did you meet President Carter? No. See, President Carter was not there because he was at Camp David at that particular time negotiating a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. So he's at Camp David with him. And he couldn't get away. To, oh, come on. <laughs> you think he'd walk away from something like that? No, of course not. He couldn't yeah. get away. And he's up there with Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat could not make it. So Rosalind Carter took over as the host, and she was great. And uh, she walked around and met everybody and during the reception. And the reception was held out on the lawn, and the driveway to the White House is circular. And they had five show cars parked there from Bud Moore, Junior Johnson, um, the Wood Brothers, and the Petties. And one yeah. more that I can't remember, to be honest with you. So they were circled around there while the Marine Corps band was up on the podiums there, uh, steps going up to the White House, and they were playing. So you had this reception with, with show cars and the Marine Corps band. Wow. I mean, that was really cool. That was and, high cotton. I'll tell you. Yeah. That. When the band, <laughs> this is the funny thing, when the band quit playing, they made a beeline to those cars. I mean, they just went Did in they? and looked. Right? Yeah. They were, we were fascinated by those cars. And David Pierce was standing next to me and he said, you know, this this circular driveway, it's a good little 5 8 mile trip. <laughs> <laughs> we ought to fire them up and get going. I said, that would be fun. So they had we had uh, country ham and biscuits and all the fixings in the buffet. And then after we ate, uh, Willie Nelson, Came on. And Willie Nelson. With his band. Yes, sir. Yeah, it was great. And, uh, uh, of course, Billy was there, Billy Carter. We all posed with pictures, my wife and I and Tom Higgins and his wife. Everybody posed with everybody else. It seemed like some great, great uh, photos from that session. One other thing, I want to bring this out. Um, inside the White House, of course, it's beautiful. And the men's room, which... I had to visit, was the most elegant men's room you've ever seen. I mean. Did you steal soap? I, well, I tried to. <laughs> no, I wanted to steal the soap, but I forgot to do so because in that bathroom, with all the curtains and the gold and the, and the, and the pictures, the framed artwork, there was a red telephone. <laughs> now, it was. It was the old rotary-style phone. Give me it, the Kremlin. <laughs> it, yeah, it didn't have the dialer. And I thought to myself, holy cow. I know what the red phone is supposed to be. It's the hotline to the Kremlin or the Pentagon or something. You didn't. I wonder what happened if I picked this thing up. <laughs> Did you? No, somebody walked in. Ah. <laughs> so, but I got thinking about it. What, what would be the sense in that? And then if you look at it one way, maybe no matter where the president is, he got to have access to that phone. <laughs> but... Then again, why would they let us use the bathroom that has a red phone in it? <laughs> I don't know to this day. The only thing I know is I'm sure glad I didn't pick it up. And now, listeners, you know how Steve Wade almost started World War III. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, Steve, last time yeah. that you were on the cover of Grand National Scene, June 26, 1986, you go undercover yeah. as a race fan in the stands at Bristol. Yeah, the idea behind the story was to find out exactly what the race fans did while they were watching a race. Because let's face it, the guys in the media don't have that experience. I mean, we sure, we have access to the, the garage area and the media center and talking to the drivers. We go up to the press box where they feed us and we watch a race in air-conditioned comfort. That is nowhere near what the fans are experiencing. And so I came up with the idea that perhaps I could go into the grandstand, sit there, and watch the race and just see what goes on. What kind of interaction do these fans have? All right, well, it started off well enough. Uh, Rob Griggs, who was our publisher at the time, came along with me. And I reported to the press box first. I sort of let it leak what I was going to do. Well, thought, that was your first mistake. Yeah, because that's, <laughs> I found that out later. Yeah. So I let a few people know what I was going to do, and I was going to go down into the grandstands and sit. So Rob and I went down, we found our seats, and we sat down. We had one advantage. A couple of other people sitting next to us are actually Grand National Scene staff members. Cindy and, and Zelly Draw. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. them. And uh, so we talked a little bit, and Greg started eating hot dogs and all this right away. And then all of a sudden, over the PA system comes this. Race fans, want you to know that today in the grandstands from Grand National Scene is Steve Wade. Did they really? They did. They said, you look for him. He's out there. He's <laughs> one of you today. I thought, oh, good Lord. <laughs> I don't know how. Well, I opened my big mouth is how you yeah, found out. Yeah. But that was before the race started, and everybody was getting settled down and getting people. A lot of people brought their, brought their own food, yeah. which I thought was pretty cool. And I looked off the second turn, and the meanest, nastiest black clouds started heading our way. And I told Griggs, I said, we're about to enter the gates of hell. We're going to have to get out of here. <laughs> he said, what for? I said, look over there. Do you see that? And I knew what was going to happen. I told Griggs, we got to get out of here. We're not prepared for this. So we... Left the grandstands, went up the steps, and back into the press box. No. We thought we'd be really That was sick. completely against the spirit of your story. Absolutely. And those guys in Come the press on, box man. knew it. Those guys knew it. The minute they saw us, they went, infidel, <laughs> unclean, get out. Please. Race fans get in the out. press box. Get out. Get, get out. out. We had to run down the stairs and tuck under, under a roof underneath the stairs going to the press box. When this storm hit, I mean, it just became sheets of rain. Yeah. And I said, I don't know how these fans are putting up with it. So I turned the corner to look back in the grandstands down the area where we were. They were ready. They had yes, ponchos they on, yeah. tarps, yeah. everything. They weren't moving. And the rain passed, and I, the Rob and I made our way back to our seats, and the, <laughs> our feet were in puddles, you know, and we said, yeah. Tried our best to dry off the seats where we were, and not very good. But all around us, no, had lost their spirit whatsoever. No. They just started taking yeah. off their ponchos and opening back up their lunch boxes or their bag, their beer, their soda, whatever it was, and started talking among each other again like nothing had ever, ever happened. And I said, this, this is what NASCAR is all about. Yes, sir. Preach it, Brother Steve. If NASCAR doesn't have this, NASCAR doesn't have anything. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And during the course of the entire race, those fans knew exactly what was going on. Yeah. You couldn't fool them if you wanted to. They knew who was leading. They knew who was the lap down. And this is, you know, all they had, really. There was radio. You could put a headset on, but that's it. There was uh, none of the technology that they have today that you, you can follow a race on a screen and everything of that nature. So, uh, and they, nobody was a stranger. Nobody was a stranger. It didn't matter what driver was your favorite. You got along, you, you talked with everybody else. They were passing drinks around, passing food around. Uh, where are you from? What you do? That yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And it's just great camaraderie there in the in the grandstand. Something that I'd heard a lot about but had never experienced and it was really, really unique. And that's what drew me to the sport initially in nineteen eighty nine was just the passion for the sport that people had. And I've mentioned them before, the Eastat family in Nashville. They lived and breathed that sport and every Sunday that was an event. To watch the race at their house and then to get to go to a race. The first race that I ever went to was in Atlanta in the spring of 1990. That was a big, big deal. This sounds corny and cliched, but it was one big happy family. Yes, sir. I mean, everybody just thoroughly enjoyed themselves. And when they left, uh, they were talking between themselves, and when they said goodbye to each other, go to their cars of that nature, they promised to meet at the next race and do it all over again. Mm-hmm. As a member of the media, your ultimate responsibility is to bring these fans who are so passionate about the sport the correct information and tell them things about racing and its people they may not know. Mm-hmm. You can tell them who won the race and how he won it. Chances are they probably already know that because they saw it. But if you tell them things about that driver or what he did that they didn't know, more or less highlight the driver, highlight his personality, uh, that's serving them even better. Now, Steve, we did not mention this last week, and that's my fault, and I apologize, but Gary Hill a longtime artist in the sport, passed away recently. And Gary, like Sam Bass, you could tell his artwork. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Sam kind of had this very vibrant style. There was a lot of color in Sam Bass's artwork. And Gary seemed to specialize in race scenes, like on the racetrack, exactly. you know, from a perspective that you would never see. And his colors are much more subtle colors. Yes, they, much more subtle. They were truly different in their style but they were one and the same in the love of nascar you know in nascar artwork there was sam bass there was gary hill and there was also Jeannie barnes and Jeannie specialized in portraits right you know because a lot of her stuff hangs in the national motorsports press association hall of fame in darlington absolutely she had painted just about every one of the members of the hall of fame in darlington south carolina me included, and I'm very, very proud of that. And Steve, I will say this. I mentioned NASA in the intro, and I did want to relay news of a good friend of mine, Bob Carlton. He passed away on Monday, and Steve, he was a flight controller in mission control during the Apollo era, and he was responsible for watching over Eagle's fuel supply Right. As Neil Armstrong landed in the Sea of Tranquility on July 20th, 1969. And Bob and I became pretty good friends. 
I got pretty close to him. Mm-hmm. And to hear news that he had passed away, it was like one of my father figures had died. So I'm going to miss him. And in honor of Bob, what I would like to do, Steve, is I'm going to play a very short clip of audio from the Apollo 11 landing. And it takes place just seconds after Eagle has landed in the Sea of Tranquility on the moon. And the first person that you hear is Bob. And he says, we've had shutdown. And that meant that the engine had shut down as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were going through their post-landing checklist. And you can hear a little bit of celebration beginning in mission control and while all that is happening bob reminds his backroom controllers to stay steady to keep their eyes on their monitors to not pay attention to kind of the celebration that's beginning to take place so in that moment i think bob shows a huge sense of professionalism I have spent a lot of time over the past decade trying to preserve history, whether it be NASA history mission control history, the space shuttle program, or NASCAR history. And Steve, you said it early, early, early on in the run of this podcast. If NASCAR forgets its history, that's the day that it doesn't have a future. Correct. And I believe the same thing about NASA. And I believe that in general. If we forget our history, we don't have much of a future. Absolutely not. And that is why history is so important. You would think that if we studied history and learned about history, we could avoid making the same mistakes. But sometimes we don't. If we remember our history, people like Bob Carlton will live on. 